because right here in the opening lines of his book, he points us toward the deity of Christ. He proclaims Jesus as light and as light. He gives the contrast between darkness that's in the world and the light that has come. He gives examples of the glory, grace, and truth of Christ and the fact that he became flesh and entered into this world. And not only does he give us a preview of his things, but he shows us that like Dickens, he was willing to learn from one of the best writers in the world many, many years ago. Because he gives us little phrases, and in some places, even a word that points us back to comfort those first five books in the Old Testament. Now, I say this for the benefit of the young preachers that are in our midst. The real dilemma for a preacher with a passage as famous and deep as the prologue of John's Gospel is how do you handle it? I mean, truth be told, we could spend an eight-week series just on the few verses that we read here this morning. When James Montgomery Boyce preached Gospel John at Tenth Prayers in Philadelphia, It took him 15 weeks for just the first 18 verses. I I could give you a series like that. I don't think any of you have ever heard it. So as a way to handle the depth and teaching before us just in these few verses in only one sermon, I've decided to let John's major Old Testament references This is the last gospel written, we believe. Many believe it was not written until around the turn of the century, meaning that a lot of Gentiles are in the church. You know, the Christian church began with this Jewish nucleus, and very quickly it spread to the Gentile world, as the book of Acts makes clear, because the apostle Paul and others are planning new churches all over that Gentile So John is trying to draw them in to what he has to say with this notion of logos, which in Greek philosophy was reason or logic. And he tells us that in the beginning was the Word. But precisely because the Word became flesh, as he makes clear in verse 14, we know 
that the prologue of John's Gospel is not just about an idea. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And we can see in this very first verse that Jesus was pre-existent. Meaning He was there in the beginning and not created. As one scholar put it, the prologue is the most complete, the most explicit study of Christ's pre-existence in the entire New Testament. The phenomenon of Jesus Christ is a phenomenon unlike anything that the world had ever seen. And not only was He in the beginning, but He was with God. Think about what that is telling us. You know, if you go out there in the vestibule and someone else comes out there with you in that vestibule, they are two completely different people. Now, don't misunderstand. There's only one God. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 8, 6 when he says, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. But Paul goes on to say in that same verse that there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. We exist for God the Father. We exist through Jesus Christ the Son. Now, we know the Trinity is a difficult doctrine to wrap our minds around. I can't understand it, and I would imagine you can't either. But there's a fine Trinitarian point being made with this phrase, and He was with God. As James Montgomery Boyce puts it, this is an affirmation of Christ's separate personality. Yes, Jesus is fully God, but John is aware that the Trinity is involved here, that there's a diversity within the Godhead. And then we read, and the Word was God. Jesus is not just a distinct personality within the Godhead, but He is in every way imaginable God. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Word was God. All the way back, very beginning, this one through whom all things were made was God. And as one scholar put it, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse, that he was God. In other words, the words and deeds of Jesus that he carries on through this public ministry are the words and deeds of none other than God himself. God is about to do through this gift of His Son at work in the world, in the flesh, looks all the way back to the first creation before moving beyond it. But this phrase, in the beginning, is not the only Old Testament reference in our text. Now, the next is the single word. John has already stolen my thunder with the children's message that we find in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is any 
good study Bible will tell you literally means he, he pitched his tent, or to use a good Old Testament word, he tabernacled among us. Now we have to talk about, because he uses this word, what the tabernacle really was. It was a tent, sometimes called the tent of meeting. In the Old Testament, it was a place of worship for the children of Israel as they traveled around. And I want you to remember what the tabernacle was because John is using this word for a reason. He's telling us so much about who Jesus is and what this purpose of the incarnation is all about by choosing a word like this right out of We can find out about the making of the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 35 through 40. Very involved, very detailed about everything that went into that place of worship. Then in Numbers 2 and 3, we can find out how the tribes of the children of Israel were camped as they traveled through the wilderness. We're told there uh, that the Levites would camp all around uh, the tabernacle court. And then there would be three tribes on one side, three tribes spaced out on the next side, three more tribes on the next side, three more tribes, so that God is literally tabernacling in the midst of His people. And Numbers 9 tells us that on the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, and at night that cloud would appear as fire. And in case you don't remember, this cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle as we can read in Exodus 40. And whenever the cloud moved from the tabernacle, this is when the children of Israel knew it was time to break camp. I mean, just think about it. Hundreds of thousands of people camping at one time, setting up camp in this spot. I mean, This word suggests God is in the midst of His people once again, except this time it's not by cloud, it's in the flesh. And just as the cloud moved and just as His glory could be seen, so will His revelation move in the midst of His people by this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as He carries on His public ministry. This means that God's glory, once restricted to the tabernacle, is now visible in Jesus. And it will be revealed not just in His physical body, but His deity will be expressed through grace and truth, or through word and deed, if that makes more sense to you, which is the way Luke would look at it. This phrase, grace and truth, is the last Old Testament phrase I want to mention. I, I don't think it's as easy for us to know 
but it's said nonetheless, and we can find these words in that famous passage in Exodus 34. It's that time, you know, when the tables of the law had been broken, and God tells Moses to come back up on the mountain. He's going to give him the tables of the law once again. The covenant is renewed, and and we can read in the sixth verse of Exodus 34 that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, that is to say Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God says more words there, but that's the basic self-definition that God gives of Himself to His people through Moses. And this is the same summary of who God is that can be found all over the Old Testament in places like Numbers 14, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 103, Jeremiah 32, and Jonah 4. In other words, this isn't something new. It's not something that's only in Scripture one time. It's all over the Old Testament. Now, the reason this is not as easy to notice as the other two Old Testament references is because the last words I quoted, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, can also be correctly translated as full of grace and truth. Abounding in grace and truth, like we see two times here in our text between verses 14 and 17. You see the point I'm trying to make and the point that John is trying to make, this word that became flesh is full of grace and truth, just like Yahweh, just like God the Father, just like the God our people have always known. This is the same God is what John is telling you and me. Now, from the Old Testament perspective, this notion of grace and truth or steadfast love and faithfulness describes the character of God as one who is loyal to the covenant He made with His people. You see, John is emphasizing the relational aspect of it. He's working, as one scholar put it, from the Hebrew Scriptures, and that's why he uses this word grace here. Other scholars, New Testament scholars, will make a big deal about how you see grace right here in the prologue in John's Gospel. And man, I don't think you see it here. Not like you see it in Paul over and over and over again. But John has all of this Old Testament Scripture in his mind. And he's got points to make with it. like God initiated a special relationship with Israel out of all the nations on the earth, so is God initiating a personal relationship in the gift of His Son, Jesus, to all who come to Him by the power of His Spirit. As one person put it, the incarnate Word reveals this God who is loyal to His covenant. And it's a covenant of all kinds of things, of mercy and grace and faithfulness and love, which we'll see over and over again in the ministry of Jesus Christ, culminating 
seen human beings. And this gift of the Son who makes God known. He shows us who God is and what He's like so that we can know God even better. In other words, He interprets God to us. Literally, the text says He executes God. And He shows us the price that God is willing to pay for our sins so that we can have a relationship with Him. This is how much God loves us. That God shows His love for us and that Christ, Christ died for us. He's willing to pay His sacrifice. He takes away the sin of the world. Precisely According to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you 